Let me say this before we start. Um, this is my sixth Sunday here. There is not a week that has gone by that you haven't blessed me in some way. And um, that's completely unfounded to me. I don't understand it. So let me just say thank you very much. So let's pray. We will get started. Father, you are God, and there is none like you. And to have a amazing privilege of the very words that you would have us to know right before us. Father, I pray that our minds will engage, our hearts will be open to the conviction of the Spirit, that the Word of God would fuel that conviction in our lives. Help us, Father, to confess any sin that we have held on to, to lay it down before you now. Uh, have it out of the way so the communication is clear. We pray, God, that the Spirit would illuminate this to our understanding. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in the middle of a series, and it's a long series. We're calling it Foundational Framework. And the reason is, is because if there's anything that is important in life, it is how you think about life, how you perceive what truth and reality are. Knowing that there is an amazing truth claim of an almighty God who declares that he alone is the creator and there is none like him whatsoever and everything else is a creation, therefore it is all subject and subservient to him is offensive to the carnal mind, is offensive to the unregenerate heart. And let's be honest, for some Christians it gets a little offensive because we end up feeling like pincushions because the Word of God's poking us to death. But the reason is, is because truth makes a statement. And truth is not something to be compromised or toyed with. So I think that's very important for us to have an understanding together as a church, unified in how we are thinking about God. The most important thought you will ever think is what you think about God, and it defines greatly who you are, greatly. Defines how you live, defines how you spend your money, defines the choices that you make, defines what you value, and it defines what you choose to pass on to everyone around you, including your kids. So it is central and it is integral to everything that we're dealing with. So... If you would, take your Bible, open it up to Genesis chapter 2. This is where we are. We just finished with what Vern read earlier about the idea that when God surveyed and assessed everything that he had made over six days, it was very good. Now remember, two important points that we've been noticing so far. When we see things like, and God said or this is the word of the Lord type of things. We don't take it lightly. Why? Because when God speaks, everything that he speaks is true. Everything that he speaks is right. And regardless of how we think about it, everything that he speaks is good. Even when it's in judgment, even when it's assessing a wrong situation, it is good because it is completely consistent with who he is. He never speaks out of character. Never. The second interesting thing that we have been seeing is that when God says it is good or it is very good, he is making a moral declaration about what is right and what is wrong. 
and especially with what we saw last week. Under the heading of man is what? Man and woman or male and female, exactly, under that heading. And notice in a perfect environment, you have this equality. Are roles different? Yes. But is one inferior to the other? It's not how God made it. So that's the first divine institution that we see is the structure of the family and how that should work. Today, we are going to deal with the second divine institution, and I'm a little weirded out about how to communicate this to everybody because there is so much to touch on. When you hit chapter three, it just all rolls down the river like it's no, you know, it just goes. But there is so much to set up foundationally in order to move forward. So here are the foundational truths that we need to understand, and they've been the same. They're going to change next week a little bit. But number one, the Bible is God's self-revelation. It is what he wants you to know about him. Can you know about the fact that there is something greater from you than looking at, in looking at creation? Yes, you can. But as far as specially revealing the intimate details of who God is, and notice, if he didn't take the time to reveal himself, he wouldn't want to make himself known. But he has and he does. Everybody with me? I'm not convinced. Yeah, see, hey, I'm, I'll call you out. I'm not scared, you know? Okay. I got Tom up here, so I don't know what that means. Uh, the second one, God is eternal and sovereign creator. He is the ruler. How many people read the paper that I put out there, the 20-page paper on what does it mean for God to be sovereign? Everybody took it and nobody read it. I printed up 45 copies of that thing. Okay, four of you have read it. The rest of you? questioning your salvation right now let's be honest not really no not at all but I think it's important for us to understand because what you'll find in this paper is a lot of what is touted today as God being sovereign is not what the Bible says about God being sovereign we are thinking according to popular opinions in theology we're not thinking according to biblical mandates that have been clearly lined out for us our thinking needs to be in line with this and here's what you'll find if your thinking is aligned with this you'll actually find a lot of friction with Christians. Everybody's bought into the system. Everybody's bought into the Lifeway store. Everybody's bought into the, 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 the worship paradigm. Everybody is bought into all these little subsects of Christianity that we have, and this is what makes the Bible so striking. Okay? Soapbox for just a second. Few people read it instead of allowing for somebody else who is a popular pastor or theologian or a book or whatever to give them how they should think about life. That is dangerous. Even with me, do not ever take anything I say as true. Examine everything according to the word of God. And then send me an email, leave me a voicemail, whatever it is, knock on my door and come tell me why I'm wrong. Please. It only matters what the word of God says. So let's move forward. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. And all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his, what's the word? Work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day. Now, this is the third time we've seen him blessing something. He blessed the animals, told them be fruitful and multiply. He blessed Adam and Eve, told them to be fruitful and multiply. And now he blesses this day that is set apart. It says, and made it holy. It is removed from common use. 
It's not like every other day. Something different is happening here. And notice it says, because on it, God rested. Notice that they're giving you the reason from all his that he had done in creation. Let me ask you a question. How is God described in these first three verses? He's a worker. He is a laborer. He is somebody who has taken time, who has crafted with skill, who has brought about the necessary elements in order to have what we see. Remember, how does God create? Speaking. Nobody else does that. Nobody else says it, and what was not now is. No one else. No one else in all of pagan mythology, and this is odd, shows you they haven't read the Bible, is smart enough to pick up on that to develop their pagan sense of origins. It's always something started with something started with something. And little kids get this when we give them a box of Legos and tell them to go to town. They're starting with something and they're creating something out of it. God starts with nothing. The only thing that exists is him, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And God said, that's when it takes place. So we serve an awesome, amazing God. Now he is trying to show us something. It is good to work, and it is good to rest. Anybody in here a workaholic? Anybody in here a restaholic? <laughs> Way more hands went up. Oh, preach it, brother, preach it. You started washing windows on that one, didn't you? Oh, brother. Restaholic. Amazing. Notice here that God is saying, here is my work. I'm done. I'm resting. Now, here's what's interesting about this seventh day. We don't get an inkling that on Sunday, that'll make you think for a second, the work week starts again and he's going to start creating again. We don't get that inkling. Everybody know that the Sabbath is really Saturday and the reason why we celebrate is because of the resurrection of Christ on Sunday. Okay, just making sure. I don't want anybody to be like, what? Is, he's crazy. Just making sure. Okay. So in doing that, notice that he describes himself. He desires to be known as a laborer. But he's going to do something very interesting. And I want to show you again, I'm sorry to pepper this and it seems like that we're peppering around, but there's so many things that this tells us that we got to hit in order to get to chapter three. So look at verse four. These are the generations. That word in Hebrew is the word toledoth is what it is. And when it talks about generations, it is talking about the idea of what is perpetuating forward existence is the idea. Genesis is set up in what is known as a Toledoth structure. It will stop somewhere in telling you about reality, and it will say, and now here are the descendants of Adam, and these are the descendants of Abraham. You know, all those places where we skip in the Bible when we read, right? Genealogy, get me to the next chapter kind of thing. Why are they there? They're important. Why? Because a written record is traceable. How does Matthew chapter 1 start? The genealogy of who? It's deeply spiritual, isn't it? Is it? Actually, it is. If you study it out, you can trace Jesus' genealogy because it is validity that he is who he said he was. Not just descended from Abraham, descended from David. It sets him up as not just a Jew inheriting promise, but also as the rightful king of Israel who should be ruling and reigning. Very important for us to see. Gene genealogies are not a waste of time. So anytime you see one, 
challenge yourself and take the time to work through it and do some research on who you're dealing with. It's very valuable to study that. So it's a total old scripture. Here are the generations. Now, the interesting thing about this first one mentioned is it doesn't say, here are the generations of the man in the garden. It doesn't say that. It's talking more about the creation of the days. And so look how it moves on here. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heaven or the earth and the heavens. Now, two interesting things here. Don't everybody lose your mind, okay? But notice what it says. In the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Did the Lord God make the heavens and the earth in one day? No, he made it in six, didn't he? So notice here, context determines meaning. How should I take this word day? How did we take it before? And there was evening and there was morning, the first what? Was there any question about what the clarity of context is of what a day consists of there? Not at all, but notice here, notice that it says, in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. What is that talking about? It's talking about that it encompasses a group of time. Now, that's not blasphemous, and that's not heretical. That's simply reading the Bible for the plain, literal meaning of what it says. Use the context to determine the meaning. Now, it does something else interesting here, and I'm sure you've gone over this before, but what do we see that's unique? Do we know? What's unique in this that we have not seen yet? What is it? Man? No. No. Everybody notice the Lord God, the Lord God. How, he, how has he been described before? Elohim, Elohim, God, God, and God said, and God said. Chapter 2, verse 4 is the first use of the phrase, the Lord God. And when we look at Lord, we are talking about Yahweh is his personal name, his covenant name with Israel. And his name can mean either, and scholars debate on this, I am, or it can mean I cause to be, is what it is. He is the uncaused cause. He is always. He is not bound by time. But when you deal with this Lord, and I have it, have it here, I'm using the English Standard Version, capital L-O-R-D, is that what you have? It's all capitals. L looks a little bit more capital. I don't know. Somebody got real nitpicky about that one, right? That was the OCD guy, right? But notice, L-O-R-D, Yahweh is what that is. Yahweh Elohim, Lord God. Now, some of your translations, if you have something different, might use the word Jehovah. Does anybody have Jehovah? Is that the New American Standard? Is that what you have? Okay, so is that not there? Is that not is that not there in your translation? Oh, that's the study notes. That's all right. It's all right. I'm kind of glad it's not. No, no, it's good. It's good. I'm kind of glad it's not because Jehovah actually ends up being where Jews didn't want to say Yahweh's name. There's a command in Leviticus that if you blaspheme his name, you deserve death. They were like, well, we're not talking about him at all. Now, with the Hebrew language, it doesn't have any vowels in the original. They weren't added until about 500 uh, A.D., I believe that it was, where they had vowels to learn pronunciation. But what they did was is they took the word Adonai, and they used the vowels from the word Adonai, which means Lord, my Lord type of thing, and they posed them in on Yahweh, and they came up with the word 
Jehovah is how they came up with it. So that's how it came about to be. It's a hybrid mixture because they didn't want to say the word Yahweh. In fact, if you can ever do any research about whenever they would go about and they're, they're transcribing, copying over, and when they came to the word Yahweh, man, they undertook some stuff. They went, took a bath, scrubbed down, got out Brillo pads, put on new clothes and everything, got a special pen, wrote it, broke the pen, threw it away, went and took a bath, got redone, and then did it again. Can you imagine? And God said, the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord, that's a lot of bathing. Some dry skin, man. That's probably where lotion came from was during the translation process. Like, I'm chafed up. I don't know. But anyway, maybe the Lord God, this whole idea, this is his proper name. This is his intimate name. This is the name he wants to be known by and invites to be known by. So notice, as the Bible goes on, we are progressively learning more about him. Now notice it says, verse 5, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused caused it to rain on the land. It didn't rain in the beginning at all, didn't need to. And there was no man to work the ground. Interesting how that's set up there. Verse 6, how did it get its nourishment? And the mist, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then, we looked at this last week, so we won't spend a lot of time on Then, the Lord God formed, created, fashioned is the idea. Very careful, meticulous involvement. The man of the dust, that's our physical makeup, from the ground and breathe. Notice, intimate, special. He didn't do this. He didn't breathe into the nostrils of the rhinoceroses. That did not happen. But he did take us. He did take Adam and breathe into him. And notice what it says, the breath of life. And the man became a living soul, a living creature. Verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And notice this, is Eden perfect? Eden is perfect. Eden has everything that Adam needs for success of whatever God calls him to do. Now, here's what stumps us, and I need to spend way more time studying it, admittedly. It tells us that Eden was in the east, right? This is all pre-flood, okay? So the landscape, geography, everything is extremely different than what we're seeing because the flood covered the entire earth. But look what happens, what they, what, what Moses does here. It's very interesting. It says here... Um, Sorry, move to 10 real quick. We'll come back and hit nine. A river flowed out of Eden the water of the gar- to, to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The, first, uh, the name of the first is Pishon, and it is the one that flowed around the land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium, bedellium's like a gum-like yellow resin type stuff that was, was plentiful there. And ox, uh, onyx, which is a red carnelian type stone, are there. Precious stones are there. Now, why is Moses telling you that now? Moses understood where the location of the Garden of Eden was. Why does he give you these specifics about gold and this weird gum resin and that kind of stuff? Because he's not lying. That's the reason why. Liars don't give details. That's an important fact to learn about Scripture. Why is all this stuff in here? You ever talk to a kid? Where you been? What do they tell you? Nowhere. And they fidget. They got to be doing something. 
But if you have a kid say, you know what, I was over at Walmart because my breath was really bad. I really needed some gum, and so I got some Trident cinnamon, and then it turns out they were selling it for 96 cents a piece, so I bought three of them, and now my breath is kissing sweet. Is that kid lying? He may be still, right? But he's really good at it. So you kind of got to give him the benefit of the doubt. You know, if you're lying, you're in sin. God will deal with you. But that's pretty good. So liars don't give details is the idea. Why does he bring all that up? So notice there's a river that's coming out here. Verse 13. The name of the second river was Gihon. And it's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And Cush, if you understand, and later on, uh, Abraham, or I'm sorry, Moses marries a Cushite woman. That would be uh, from northern Africa is what we're dealing with there geographically. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, I don't know this for sure, but I've heard what some people have plotted this out. And they said, you know what? Actually, if you look at this in geography before the flood, all the rivers are listed backwards as opposed to how they're listed now. Very interesting. Because Euphrates flows into what? You might know? Persian Gulf. It flows into the Persian Gulf. Some people say if you list this out geographically before the flood, they, it's actually listed backwards. He's naming it off across there. And when he does, it's backwards from how they're set up now. The flood changed everything. Good point. So back to verse 9, because it's very significant. Out of the ground, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now stop for just a second. I'm not going to spoil it for you. But do me a favor, if you mark in your Bible, and God's okay with that, if you do that, take your handy-dandy Grace Bible Church pen and mark this verse. Because I need you to pay attention to that because we're going to come back to it later. The fact of that it's pleasant to the sight and good for food. That's very important. So notice what it says there. The Lord God made to spring up how many trees? Every tree. Every tree. It was pleasant to the sight, looks good, good for food. Man, it tastes good. It's going to nourish me thoroughly. But notice this little part here. The tree of life, tree number one, was in the midst of the garden, and number two, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two trees to choose from. Midst of the garden. Everybody pay attention to that. So now let's pop down to verse 15. Here's what I want to get at. Pull out your papers, please. What is a divine institution. A divine institution is a God-ordained system that was mandated before the fall. Now, why is this important? Because structurally speaking, it is setting up a divine method of operation because everything that God does is perfect. Everybody with me? Okay, let's, let's use this and let's explore it for just a second. The union of man and woman, is that a perfect union? Praise God you said that. I'm sorry. You don't know my husband. Good job. Yes. It is a perfect union. How do we know that? God designed it. Do you get kids any other way? No. In fact, if you try to get kids through any other way, you are having to introduce foreign means to compensate what a denial of truth is. Now, don't get me wrong. Some people have difficulty getting pregnant. Some people medically can't get pregnant. Yes, I'm not downing that or anything. But I'm saying if we look at what it looks like in a sinless, perfect society, how did God set it up? There's the truth. Everybody see that? Now notice what he's doing here. God's described himself as a laborer. The second divine institution is labor. It's work. It's not rest. It's work. There is something noble in the idea of working hard. Look at verse 15. 
The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Stop for just a second. Go back up to verse 8. And the Lord God planted the Garden of Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. Everybody see how those go together? This other verse here is giving you an extension of what you were seeing previously. So notice that. He puts him there, and let's finish the rest of that verse here. Notice it says here, verse 15, The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to two things. First, work it. Now stop for a second. Everything's perfect. Why would he need to work the garden? Mm. See, everybody's worried about where Adam's belly button came from. That's not the real question, man. The real question is, why does God... Take Adam, we don't have any mention of Eve yet, takes Adam, puts him in a garden. Your responsibility here is to work this garden. Everything's perfect, why? Just having a rough year with bananas or what? I mean, I know those trees, but still. The tomatoes just not making it? Why would he do that? What's that? Purpose. Does does it give you a sense that God is just going to let Adam lay back on the beach and he's just going to sustain it all for him? Adam, you just hang out, man. You had a rough day, you know, all that dirt coming together and me breathing into you so that you could actually open your eyes and heartbeat. I mean, that's pretty rough, right? You lay here. Listen to the sand or listen to the ocean, whatever. I'm just going to, I'll cultivate all this for you. No. Notice that he calls Adam into making his existence perpetual. Now you say, wait a second, Adam hasn't sinned, he can't die. No, but does he need to eat? Yeah, regardless, sin or not, we need to eat, right? That's kind of the thing we do with that. But yeah, he's going to eat. He needs to cultivate that. But here's an interesting thing, the idea of cultivating the ground. Look what it says, the second thing. It's not just work in the ground, but look what he says here. And keep it. What does your translation have? Keep it? Does it say keep it? Take care of it. Take it. There's no sin. There's no thorns. I mean, isn't thorns a result of the fall? Weeds are a result of the fall. Let's just be honest, man. Living here, mosquitoes are part of the fall. They weren't biting at them beforehand. They were picking on innocent mangoes and things like that. They weren't after flesh. They weren't after blood. Why does he say Work it and keep it. You know, examining this word, it's the idea of watching over or guarding. Now, I have a theory, and that's all that it is. Understand this. But we are to think critically about the Bible. Why in the world, in a perfect environment, would a perfect man, under submission to a perfect God, receiving a perfect task, need to guard a perfect garden? What's in there? Anybody know? What's that? Man, there's a you guys sound like somebody just threw a bunch of speaking spells down the stairs. Somebody raise your hand and tell me. What do you think? He watches it and guards his creation. Okay. That's what God does, and so maybe Adam is representing that. Maybe this is him stepping up in dominion, and that's part of it. Possibly. Okay, so the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he might need to guard that. Here's the question. Guard it from who? 
Why is Satan scared of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Here's a question. Does Satan know good and evil? He does, doesn't he? So can't guard it from him. He don't need to eat from that tree. I'm asking questions. You can't answer my question with a question. Okay, answer the question. Mm-hmm. We don't know when it was put there. It's just mentioned. Yeah. With the tree of life. If there was no evil, that would make no sense at all. Okay. So apparently evil was in the world when that tree was in there. Oh, man. Every, it was great seeing all your faces. You all go, mm. <laughs> light bulbs are coming on. Why would God need to put something forward of the knowledge of, understand the tree's not evil. It's not an evil tree, okay? The knowledge of good and evil, which means that evil must have existed at that time. And if Adam is called to guard it, what does God know is going on? And he gives man the opportunity of testing for defense. Who's he defending the garden from? Himself? No. He's not sinful. Satan. Now, does it clearly say that and, and Adam was to defend the garden from Satan and so they gave him a machete and an M16? It doesn't say that stuff. <laughs> but what can we deduce from critically thinking about it? Well, why would there be a tree of good and evil if evil wasn't a possibility to understand or know? And why in the world would he have to keep a perfect garden and guard a perfect garden if everything is perfect? I think Satan fell somewhere in the midst of this. We're going to talk about that in two weeks. Don't miss next week. Next week, everybody come and make sure you sleep really well. And make sure you're very relaxed when you get here. Just letting you know. Ooh, teaser. Uh, but anyway, but think about this. There's now a responsibility a responsibility that has been placed in his hands. The prohibition is, don't you eat of that tree. Now, here's the thing. Is, is there a scarcity of food going around? None whatsoever. Notice, it's just don't eat of that one. You ever dealt with a kid like that? Man, you could have Toys R Us sitting in your living room. And you could say, stay off that first step. You guarantee that child is camped out on that first step and has smeared food all over it and is guaranteeing I have marked this as my own. Toys haven't been touched. You could take them back and get your money back. That step, just because you said don't want to. You know how that is. You've probably been the wet paint person, right? Because somehow it wasn't going to come off on our hands. But we had to test it, didn't we? We had to. Now remember, at this point, Adam is not like me. He's not like you. He's sinless. Still a creature. Still totally subservient, submissive to God. God is the creator. Don't get the creator-creature distinction messed up. So he's perfect. Let's move on to 16. The Lord God commanded the man. Now hold for just one second because I want you to think about this for those of you that have kids, thinking about having kids. Parenting-wise, this right here, these two verses are some of the best parenting advice you're ever going to see in your life, okay? Watch what God does as a father. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Did he give Adam freedom? Here you go, man. 
And notice, it's every tree. And what did we see before that we marked? Pleasant to the sight? Because nobody wants to eat ugly food, right? How many people like ugly food? Nobody. In fact, grocery stores go out of their way to entice you with how pretty the food is. And if it doesn't look pretty when they're done with it, they just throw in some food coloring and everybody likes it then. So notice, pleasant to the sight and good for food. It will accomplish what it needs to when taken into your body. Adam, you have freedom here. Every tree of the garden you can eat establishes what the freedom is for his creation. But notice what he says in 17. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Notice here, there's a boundary. Kids need boundaries. Let me say it again. Kids need boundaries. If you are going to be one of these people who say, well, when we have kids, we're not going to put any rules on our kids. Do us a favor and go get fixed. (laughs) Don't have children. Don't. Don't. Because all the rest of us that are responsible are cleaning up after your kid because we can't handle it. We got enough problems in adult society now and it all originates from that one fatal mistake. Discipline your kids. Set boundaries. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. Spank them. It's not going to hurt you. It'll hurt you way worse later if you don't. You can be guaranteed of that. And start early. I'm not an authority. My kid's 16 months old. But we started when he was seven months. And we are continuing. And he's doing pretty good. And you know what? Strangely enough, he's pretty happy. He's a pretty happy... Have you seen him? You ever seen him walk? (laughs) I mean... At first, I was like, man, he's not walking right. No, he's just happy all the time. That's just how happy people walk. Very weird. I imagine that's what John Wayne looked like if he would have went to the carnival or something. Whatever. Notice that he sets the boundaries. You shall not eat of this. You've got this realm of freedom, but here's what you need to stay away from. Now, here's the thing. Is God trying to kill Adam's good time? Is Adam like, oh, man, come on. That's the prettiest tree. That's the tree that's best for food. Is God keeping the best from Adam? No. In fact, the best thing is everything that's in line with what God's saying, isn't it? Notice that. What would be the enemy in this situation? Not believing what God said. Unbelief. Unbelief is the enemy of God. So notice, moving on here. The next one, notice that he spells out the consequences for violating the boundary. See, here's where it really works well. Child, here is your freedom. Child, here is your prohibition. Child, if you violate that, here is what is going to happen. Notice that God doesn't count to three. Praise the Lord. He doesn't count to three. God says this is what's going to happen, and here's the crazy thing. This is what makes him a very, very loving father. He follows through with what he says he's going to do. It's not, here are the consequences. And then when that's violated, when sin occurs, when it's broken, he says, well, you're a pretty good kid. No, because he's just. It's got to be dealt with. It has to be handled. It can't be let go because if it is, there ceases to be consequences for actions. Let me ask you a question. You think in the world we're in that boat right now? 
No consequences for actions. All I got to do is spend 10 minutes on Facebook. You see that? The place is crazy. That's what that is. It's an online insane asylum. Because no one lives according to any sort of truth or barrier or boundary, and they're very bold about saying whatever they want to as long as they don't have to personally be responsible for it. Celebrities get away with it now. What do they do? Oh, tomorrow I'll release a press release and say I'm sorry. Everybody see how messed up this is. It all comes back to here. Somebody didn't follow through in their life to let them know there are consequences for your actions. Notice what he tells Adam. You shall not eat it for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely what? Die. First mention in scripture of the idea of death. Now here's the thing. Could Adam set up a tree house in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Yes. Could he put a tire swing out there? Yes. Could he carve his initials? Adam loves Eve forever. He could totally do that. The prohibition was not to eat. Don't eat it. When you do, death will occur. Now we consider say, well, it's perfect and nothing's ever died, so Adam doesn't know what that is. You think God explained it? You think God tells us things that he's like, now figure it out. That's not good parenting. It's not good parenting. So the idea, sin leading to death. Let's pop this out. I've lifted this, uh, I've lifted this slide here from New Tribes Missions. The penalty for sin is death. Here lies the remains of mankind if this happens. There are three types of death that we find in the Scriptures. The first thing that we need to know, though, death does not mean that you cease to be. That's not death. If that's the case, then we don't have to worry about heaven whatsoever because it doesn't really exist. We're not going to be here. That's cessation. That's an annihilationism type of mentality that you have. But no, 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 no. That's not what we're dealing with. It never means to cease to be. It always means separation of some kind. Separation is the idea. So notice here, the first type of death, and you've got these written down if you want to add some notes. First kind we're dealing with here, spiritual death. And the idea here, man, and you understand, if you've read Charles Ryrie, you'll find that I disagree with him. He believes that man is a dichotomy, okay? That soul and spirit are one and that body is something separate. I do not. I believe that the Bible teaches that we are a trichotomy that we have a soul, spirit, and body. And actually, I would say in the order of spirit, soul, and body. And so when we deal with the idea of spiritual death, it is actually that our spirit would be separated from God. That can happen here and now, here on earth. In fact, we're all born into this situation because of the effects of original sin. Sin separates us from God, and we are separated spirit-wise from him. The next one that we're dealing with is physical death. It's the idea of you actually kicking the bucket. This body has come to an end, and therefore your body has expired. And what we find is that our spirit is separated from our body. Now notice it doesn't say, and the spirit ceases to be. That's not the idea that you no longer have a spirit, it doesn't go anywhere. No, 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 no. You still deal with that. In fact, what is the whole point of the rapture? The rapture is the gathering up of what part of us? Spirit, soul, or body? Body. And we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. The trumpet will call us up. The dead in Christ will be raised first. We will be raised. Well, if, if we're already with Jesus, how will we be raised? Because we absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord, spirit-wise. When the rapture occurs, our bodies are transformed into glorified bodies, and our spirits can now inhabit that because you can't stand face-to-face -face with Jesus Christ without obliterating to death unless he does something about your bodily state. Everybody see how that works? So notice, when we talk about physical death here, separation of our spirit from our body, but there is also a third one, and that is eternal 
death. Eternal death. If you notice on your paper, man's spirit, soul, and body are separated from God forever. This is what we see occurring, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, in the lake of fire is the idea, or that's where the lake of fire is mentioned. It's not, forgive me, that's the great white throne judgment where people have never believed in Jesus. That is the judgment, and it qualifies them because they're not worthy of works. Jesus checks that. He's a good judge. But also their names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. The only suitable place for people who do not have life is in a place with lifeless people. That's the lake of fire. So when we talk about death, we're talking about it in three avenues. There's grave consequences for what would be undertaken here if Adam chooses to disobey. But here's the important thing. He knows what will happen if he disobeys. Do children test that in your life? Oh, brother, right? Don't you do that, or... There's this video, 1982. It's a Christmas video. I don't think they had audio on the video, you know, camcorders. Everybody remember those? They were like boom boxes with lenses. Everybody remember? Hold them up like that, had the microphone. Put the big VHS cassettes in there. And there's this video of my wife at Christmas, one years old. And there's the shiny ornament right next to her. And you know, she's over there and she's looking at it and she just goes. Eyes get big and she's reaching for it. Her mom comes in the picture and kind of pushes her hand down. And she's, you know, where are you coming from? What are you trying to tell me what to do, right? And so what does she do? Goes again, gets pushed down. Goes again, hand gets slapped, Right? And you kind of see like a wag of a finger off the camera, you know, kind of in there. And so what does she do? She's looking and she goes. <laughs> right? Because we just can't resist it, man. We have got to go for it. There's something in us that has to grab the ornament. God knows that this is a possible future for man, and he is trying to save him from disastrous consequences. As a good father, he gives him the freedom. He gives him the boundaries. He tells him the consequences. Very important. Now, something that we need to look at that's kind of separated from this, but it's in your notes, and I feel like it's important to bring up because we're dealing with the responsibility aspect of it, is we're going to start talking about dispensations as we hit them. I've given you a, a definition of dispensation from the Schofield Reference Bible. It says here, a period of time during which man is tested in respect of obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. Sometimes dispensations are also known as administrations, is what they sometimes define as. Dispensation is a, is a completely biblical word. It comes from the Greek word oikonomia, and it's where we get the English word economy from. And it's not necessarily pertaining to money, that's not it, or not necessarily just a certain locked out period of time. The idea is, is because God created everything, he gets to choose how he runs everything. Now, as a parent or grandparent, you're familiar with that, right? Some of your grandparents have forgotten that, what that was like when you were parents. I encourage you as a current parent, remember that for our sake, please. They're now, don't sugar them up, send them home. Don't do that. Um, but here's, I wanted to clarify this a little bit. A dispensation reveals the way that God desires to run the economy of history during that particular period. He sets the requirements. He sets the bounds. He sets the expectations. He endows the responsibility. A dispensation always involves God's relationship to man. 
That's the crux of that relationship. Why do I bring that out? Because I've seen some guys are like, man, there are 14 dispensations because in eternity past, God did all this. It wasn't in relation to man. It wasn't in relation to his creation, and that is how a dispensation is done. So here are four things, and this is mine. This is what I've found as I've studied dispensations, just so that you can look for it in Scripture when you see it and as we cover it. Within a dispensation, there's a pattern. Number one, there's a responsibility. Man is accountable to uphold or fulfill something. Have we seen that today? Man is accountable to guard the garden, to work the garden, keep the garden. Don't eat of that tree. That's the responsibility that he has. Number two, there is a failure. We're going to see that soon. Man fails at upholding his responsibility. Sin gets the better of him. He doesn't believe the consequences are real. He falls into unbelief. Number three, there's a judgment. God holds man responsible for his failure. Sin requires death. When God said you will surely die, he was not joking. Death is mandated, and only blood can atone for sin. Why is that? God's the one who set it up that way. So sin is powerful. It creates an insane friction with God that is irreparable apart from divinity being involved. We're going to talk more about that later. But here's what you always see at the end of every dispensation. There's grace. God always lavishes upon the one who offended him blessings that they do not deserve. He still demonstrates his love as any good father does. As any good father does. One of the most amazing things that God does, this is a little bit of a tangent, one of the most amazing things that God does, especially if you're reading in the Old Testament, first five books, the children of Israel get all out of whack and they'll do something. He'll bring in a judgment. Judgment happens. And then after that, God continues on like nothing happened. They served out or received the punishment for that specific act. And you know what God did after that? He let it go. He didn't keep digging it up. He didn't keep shoving it in their faces. He didn't guilt trip them. Anytime that he brought up the past, he was reminding them so they didn't make the same mistakes moving into the future. That's just good parenting. But once the discipline was served out, he let it go no longer offended, restoring them into a fellowship relationship because it had been dealt with. Everybody see how that works? Notice that God shows himself to be a laborer. He has endowed us with a noble work of labor. It's important for us to be involved. Now, I'm going to use an example here that's going to get me fired. It's good to prep you like that, isn't it? I've been reading this book, In Search of God and Guinness. It's about beer. There's some of you are like, oh man, now you're questioning my salvation. Some of you are like, you live in Wisconsin, I get it. I've seen the culture here, man, let's not pretend. But here's an interesting thing, which you may not know about the Guinness Brewery over in Dublin, Ireland, is that it is rooted in a long religious history. They're actually pretty devout Christians. Now at that time, being in Dublin, of course, they're affiliated with Catholicism, but what was interesting about it was is they actually stood up for Protestant rites in the midst of Catholicism in that time, and the Catholics got real mad at them. It's an interesting read. But one thing that was very interesting about this company, as time went down, brewery gets passed off, you had a lot of people who should have inherited the the company that actually stepped back and went into the ministry instead. You find that littered throughout 
their history. But there came a time in about 1894 where they hired an assistant medical examiner for the brewery. The brewery employs about 3,000 people in that time. About five years later, around 1900, he is promoted to the chief medical examiner. The other guy retires. His name is Dr. John Lumsden. And what Dr. John Lumsden saw as he went about the brewery and when he also was experiencing life outside was that Dublin was the hotbed for disease, dysentery, infection, rats, you name it. If it's unsanitary, Dublin was known for it. It was a sickbed is what it was at that time. You have that happen and it begins to affect your workers and your production. So he looked at this and he said, you know what? This can be better. He goes to the board of the Guinness factory and he says, as the chief medical examiner, I would like your permission to be able to step into the homes of all of the workers of this factory. And I want to examine their living quarters to see if they are sanitary and fit so that we have healthy workers that will continue to provide us the best production possible. They said, okay, go for it. He visited 35.6 homes a day. There are over 3,000 workers, which that's just workers. Now imagine their families on top of that, right? It's kind of like Jesus fed the 5,000 or 5,000 men. No, women and children too. So think of that. He actually goes through and examines, and what he found out was about 40% of the houses that people lived in were completely unsatisfactory. Something has got to be done about this situation. And so what he begins to do is put together a program. And you can read, if you ever get this, or or, or you maybe can research it, some of the things that he found and documented, I can't even speak to you about because it would make you throw up right now. And we're talking about maybe like 11 families living in a two-bedroom home, all sharing one toilet. Very interesting. Terrible conditions. No wonder sickness was being bred underneath their work. And so he begins to institute a plan in order to clean everything up, in order to provide healthier living, and starts to give incentives to the workers. See, the workers there in Dublin were already some of the most high-paid workers simply from the factory because the Guinnesses happened to be extremely wealthy and generous people given Christian convictions. It was embedded into everything that they did. They understood it, and it manifested in how they lived and how they worked. Why? Because they wanted to take care of people that were working hard. One of the things that he instituted was is that fact of if, if you call in sick, but yeah, we can come by your house and you're still good to move around and everything, you don't get sick pay. Man, imagine if we did that today. That'd destroy our welfare system here, wouldn't it? We'd have so much money laying around, we wouldn't know what to do. But it's simple principles like that. He said, you know what we also need to do? These people need to be educated. Let's help them be better at what they do. Let's develop them. Let's give them education. Let's provide medical care for their families. Let's put some doctors on staff. Let's get the best medical equipment that we can. Let's have them be trained in basic things like sewing. Let's have the women in the homes keep a record of where money goes, where money comes from. How are they living in their budget-wise? Now, are they micromanaging things? Is that the idea? That wasn't the point. The idea wasn't to tell people what they could and could not do. The idea was to take a conviction 
that people are created by God and the fact that they are valuable and using the place of employment for the sake of glorifying God. In fact, it's interesting, one of the lines says, Lumsden was a devoted Christian and a deeply ethical man. So it was more the narrow Victorian values that moved him to thunder in his report. This overcrowding, besides being unhealthy in the extreme and a means of the spread of disease, is also highly immoral. He would go through some and he'd say, you know what, in poor communities, what you're going to have is two people of the opposite sex sharing the same bed. It's not good, guys. It's not good. And they're having to be there because everybody's trying to crowd in for shelter. You know what? What if we took the time to build them nicer homes and move them into that situation so that everybody could be separated out and everybody could have a healthier lifestyle? And here was the amazing thing. In your work there at the Guinness factory, if you were maintaining your home and keeping a healthy living style there and participating in the programs that they offered, women were able to take cooking classes to teach them how to do better things. I was talking with Chris Breakbush. They offer that out there. This idea that they have a chef on staff that teaches people how to prepare these things and how to have a better, healthier atmosphere when you're dealing with that. You got incentives. You got bonuses. People got healthy real quick because people wanted a better life. Where did this all come from? It comes from a simple thing of going, you know what? Work is noble. I don't have to just be a priest, be a nun, be a preacher, be a scholar, be a professor, and that's how I serve God. I can live out the principles that God mandated way before the fall because he's calling man to work. And I can do that whether I'm greeting people at Walmart, whether I'm changing attire, whether I'm a sandwich artist at Subway. Doesn't matter. All work qualifies because it's not about the work that's in front of you. It's about the ethic and conviction that you bring to it. God's trying to change a worldview of people, sinful people, in Genesis chapter 2 us reading it, making us realize, you know what, before sin was ever there, work happened. He had to work it. He had to guard it. There was diligence. There was responsibility involved. And if he fails in that responsibility, he is accountable for that. God is just. And with that justice comes our responsibility and accountability. Everybody with me? Let's pray. God, thank you that you have seen fit to give us a model with Adam being placed in the garden, setting forward a task for him, a responsibility to fulfill, to undertake, to be faithful in, to be diligent in, to work hard, to keep this garden, to guard this garden, but most importantly, to hold fast to what you have said. Only your word is truth. Father, I pray we ponder this throughout the week. Convict our hearts. Add it to our understanding. Change our minds. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.